0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. everybody to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan, if this is your first time here. Uh, apologize for the heat a little bit. We had technicians out several times uh, this week to try to get everything uh, kind of tied up and cool again, and and they weren't able to get to the one that actually cools this room, the most important, but that's okay. Our children are just swimming in AC right now, which is great. Um, So we're currently in a series called Piercing the Veil, and what we're doing is that we're allowing the parables of Jesus to uh, disrupt us, to send us to... They are a discourse that sends us radically off course from our status quo and how we assume the world works and what we assume God is like onto a dramatically new course where we begin to encounter through, um, through these parables, through these mysterious stories, we encounter the reality of God that's revealed in Jesus and the reality of his kingdom, what it actually asks of us, what it actually offers of us. And so each week we've been taking one parable of Jesus and just kind of asking those questions. What does this reveal to us about the king and his kingdom? Um, And then each Thursday we're sending out uh, another parable that kind of parallels the one from the previous Sunday to give us that deeper understanding. Um, And so today we're going to be looking at the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, or the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 18. Um, early, earlier this week, uh, last Tuesday, this past Tuesday, I was at a show, I was at a secular show, you guys. Don't worry, I was all prayed up and ready to go. And uh, what happens to me so often, kind of in very public spaces, where there's a lot of things going on, it's loud and it's sweaty, is I kind of start to tune out sometimes and I start to reflect. And I was just kind of working through some stuff that, that had happened earlier in the day and kind of, you know, just just, as you do, you know, you tend to dwell on things you should have said or shouldn't have said or, you know, all of that stuff. And as I was processing that in the midst of all of these, like, sweaty teenagers that were punching each other and, you are generally having a good time, there was that little thought that just eked out of my mind. I don't know if you've ever had this scenario when you're dealing with your own stuff, but you have this little moment where you go, well, at least I'm not like them. Yeah, we're going to go there today. We're going to get real uncomfortable today. And it was... And it's so crazy because it was one of those moments where I'm preparing a a sermon that's literally about that idea, a story that Jesus tells of someone who's literally in that position to say, thank God I'm not like that person, or those groups of people. And, and it's so often what happens to me is I begin that self-observation to see those little moments in my own story where I have to begin to live out the things that I'm actually teaching. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. What I realized um, in that moment on, on Tuesday night is that pride is kind of this double-edged sword. The first portion of pride is personal self-accomplishment. Where, you know, we uh, are very justified by what we've done, by what we've accomplished, the kinds of pieces of paper that we have, the schools that we've gone to, the promotions we've got, whatever it is in our world that gives us some semblance of value. That we uh, elevate ourselves, we build ourselves up based on our own personal accomplishments. But a lot of times that's not enough when it comes to pride. Pride means that we also enter into the world of comparison and competition. Where it's not enough just for us to celebrate the good things that we've done but that we also need to look at somebody else and establish that there's some sort of a distance or a space between us and how right we are and how correct we are in the way that we've chosen to live life and how wrong everybody else is. And so today I want to talk about pride and humility. I want to talk about confession and repentance. In a word I want to talk about the upside down nature of the kingdom. And I think there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be very triggering in what I say. Because a lot of these uh, ideas, these kingdom ideas, have been misappropriated very often within the church itself, and they've been used in the space of condemnation, and that's why a lot of times when we hear words like confession or repentance, when we talk about pride, when we talk about humility, it's used in a very condemnatory way that's meant uh, to diminish who we are and actually hold us back, and it does not do what it's intended to. Um, but I really kind of want to rescue and redeem that, so I just I want you to be in a position where when you feel that feeling of condemnation, um, that you just hand that over to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so John says in one of his letters, you know, if our hearts condemn us, we know God is bigger than our hearts. And if He doesn't, great. And so just know that even when your heart condemns you, that's not the Lord speaking to you. And that there's maybe even something in that, the way in which you hold these ideas that God wants to work through. And so this is kind of the main thing that I want us to understand today. Um, as we're reading these parables and looking at them through the lens of what they speak of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is entered by way of humility, which is embracing our neediness. And there's a lot of different ways that we can talk about humility, and there's a lot of different avenues. And of course, I can't get to all of those things this evening. And so we're just going to suffice it to say that humility for us tonight is us embracing our neediness. And so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, beginning in the ninth verse. Luke 18 is a really great chapter for understanding some very key postures that we need in order to enter the kingdom. I think this is kind of the question that Jesus is answering for us. How do we enter into this new reality of God? And so he begins with the parable that actually Stacy is going to be writing the reflection for this coming Thursday about the persistent widow in saying that we are required as we come to the judge, as we demand justice in our lives, that we're persistent and we continue to push and that we don't give up easily. And then he goes into this parable that we're gonna be looking at this evening of the the Pharisee and the publican about humility. He begins talking about how we need the posture of little children, that we need to be open-handed, that we need to be, uh, even as as Cole was just saying, kind of wide-eyed and prepared for that sense of wonder but that deep level of trust that comes with being a child. And then finally his engagement with the rich young ruler, uh, asking about how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? And he gives this idea of generosity. And so the postures that we need for the kingdom are persistence, humility, open-handedness, and finally generosity. And so a little bit of a background on the main characters that we're going to be engaging with. um, Because I think sometimes they're a little bit difficult for us to understand when we're 2,000 years removed from these two kind of archetypes of people. We have a Pharisee and we have a tax collector. And I think in our own day and age, a Pharisee is almost unanimously used uh, as a term of contempt. That when we call somebody a Pharisee, what we're saying is that they are kind of religiously snooty. They're very uh, self-justified. Um, they really believe that they have all the right answers. And you know, we, we have this general sentiment of negativity when we speak of Pharisees in our day and age. But we have to understand that in, in, in Jesus' time, the Pharisees, they were Harvard material. They were Yale. They were Princeton. They were Oxford. These were the creme de la creme of the religious elite. If anybody knew what God was like and what God required of his faithful people, it was going to be the Pharisees. They were this school of thought, this kind of way of doing Judaism, of doing Torah that kind of set them apart. And there's this really fantastic moment in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is speaking to a lot of very normal, everyday Jews. And he says, I tell you the truth, if your righteousness does not exceed that of even the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And you can think for them, they're like, oh my goodness, like this is an impossible task. But through Jesus' ministry, he begins to disassemble this understanding of what it means to be a Pharisee. And on the other side of this parable, we have the publican or the tax collector. Any tax collectors in here? Maybe you don't want to admit to that. That's fine. You know, for us, tax collectors are kind of a necessary part of our society. Um, But it's fascinating to understand that in the first century, the, the tax collectors were essentially seen as traitors. So Judea was an occupied country. They were an occupied territory. And they actually had a puppet government. Um, The the King Herod and his sons that reigned after him in Jesus' adulthood, they were a puppet government that was established by the Roman Empire. They didn't really have a lot of power and authority, but they were rather there to carry out the will of Caesar, the will of the emperor. And so, uh, Jews were taxed actually on two levels. They had their normal taxes that were gathered up Uh, on behalf of the Judean government but there was this whole second tier of taxation that was going towards the Roman Empire. And and don't quote me on this but I think in the first century the taxation rate was something like 80 to 90 percent. So if you're a tax collector, you're not in good company. And the major thing was that you're literally robbing from your own people in order to benefit the oppressors, in order to benefit this, this oppressive government. That's, uh, that's ruling over the Jewish people. And so there's a great antipathy towards anybody who found themselves as tax collectors. They have sold out their own people. This is the real power of the story we see, for example, with Jesus and Zacchaeus. That not only was he a wee little man, but he was seen as this despicable traitor who sold out his own people to make a buck off of the back of the Roman Empire. And so I think we really need to understand those two postures before we read um, this parable. And I think the thing that I really want to challenge you with before we read it is you need to see that your default position is the position of the Pharisee. A lot of times we love to read ourselves into the oppressed people. We love to read ourselves as the underdogs in the biblical story but we miss that maybe our modern society is a little bit more Rome than it is Jerusalem. That our culture is a little bit more Babylon than it is Israel. And when we begin to see that, that we're in the position of being the privileged and the self-justified, we can begin to disassemble that sense of false pride that comes from being someone in a place of privilege and position and power and then we can actually make that move to enter into the kingdom. So I want us to start by understanding our default position is the position of the Pharisee, but it's the heart of the publican of the tax collector. That's actually our goal. In one of the commentaries that we have in the library uh, from many years ago, A.M. Hunter speaks of this parable. He says, you can tell a man's character from the books he reads or the friends he keeps, but if you could hear them, nothing would reveal a man more than his prayers, and I assume that's true of women as well. So let's jump in, Luke 18, beginning in the ninth verse. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so we see this juxtaposition in the language of prayer, the heart postures of these two men. And as I've said many times before, the way we pray indicates what we think about God. And so we have in this Pharisee, he comes to the Almighty and he's got his list of accomplishments. And I don't know if you're like this, maybe with your parents or your employers, whatever, where you start every conversation by just saying, I need you to validate me in everything that I've done that's correct seems like a very strange way to begin a conversation but there's something in this pharisee that he needs to prove that he's on the right side of history that he's got it correct and so that first position of pride where he says yahweh here's all of my accomplishments i'm following all the rules i'm interpreting the torah correctly i'm getting it all right but it's not enough just to stop there i also need you to recognize that i'm not like this guy there was a, uh, a great little cartoon in The New Yorker several years ago, and it sees two dogs sitting around having a drink, and they said, it's not enough that dogs succeed, cats also have to fail. And our society is actually hinged on that reality. Our culture is built on a spirit of competition, that it's not enough just for us to succeed, we also need somebody else to fail. And so I think this becomes the broken lens of the Pharisee in his attitudes towards prayer and what he really thinks about what God's heart is for his people. But humility positions us to receive the kingdom for ourselves instead of prescribing it to others. Okay? You need to write that down. Okay? Tattoo it on your heart. Maybe your forearm. I don't know. That would be pretty rad. Humility positions us to receive the kingdom for ourselves instead of prescribing it to other people. This is the trouble that pride gets us in. And it's the broken lens of the Pharisee for him to say, here's why I'm justified and I'm not like this guy. Because in his culture, in his society, in the structures of the day, it was this illusion of power that he was living under. That not only was he self-aggrandizing, but he was also seeking to diminish the other, the less than, the outcast. He needed to compare himself to that other person. And I think that speaks such a powerful truth for our understanding because our society is built exactly the same way. We want to be accepted for who we are today, but we want other people to change. This is our attitude when we come to people that are in places of authority, when we come to our beloved, and most of all when we come to God. We want to be accepted exactly as we are today, but we look around at all of the other idiots in the room and we want them to change. They're the ones that need an extra dose of the kingdom. They're the ones that need to learn that truth. And when we have that attitude, I want to live a static life. I want to be accepted just the way that I am today, and I don't want to be expected to change. But everybody else needs to get a clue. We find ourselves in that position of pride, and it's the first thing that keeps us from stepping into the realities of the kingdom. I believe that pride actually covers over our deep fear of inadequacy. That when we, are, when we grow up in families and in cultural systems that tell us that we are justified by our accomplishments and that we're supposed to be strong and capable and brave, and that's what it really means to be a human being, that's what it really means to have worth, we all feel this very deep-seated sense of inadequacy when we are confronted with a culture that celebrates power, and specifically power as control control over our own lives, control over the lives of other people, we find that we are grossly inadequate, that we never measure up, that we are not worthy. And so the games that we play with the illusion of power that comes from pride are actually this distraction that's meant to keep us from facing the material reality of our own lives. And then secondly, pride leads us to competition. That we're, we're competing for our identities. We're trying to earn love. We're trying to earn value. We're trying to find someone to give us definition. And we are, there's a limited amount of identity out there. There's a limited amount of love. There's a limited amount of worth. And so it's not enough that I find that for myself, but I also have to hold other people at arm's length from it because maybe there's not a to go around. There's that scarcity mindset that we talk about so often. And so we're competing for identities with our brothers and sisters based on this performance and self-reliance. And I think there's a very specific form of pride that plagues the people of God. And it's a spiritual pride that is about us helping other people so that we don't have to admit to our own neediness. When we distract ourselves from how needy and weak we are, We distract ourselves by being busy in the sake of helping other people. That we're very quick to recognize that there are other people around us, maybe even in this room right now, and they need our help. They need our advice. They need our wisdom. But we play that game as a way that we can distract ourselves from seeing how needy we really are. Because many of us have grown up in a church culture that gives us a testimony that goes something like this. I used to be a mess, but then I met Jesus, and I'm fine now right? Like, I was a terrible, awful person, and I rode motorcycles, and I did drugs, and I kicked puppies, and then I met Jesus at this rally, and someone was up there playing the guitar, and there was lots of reverb on it, and they made the call, and I came down to the front, and some (laughs) weirdo laid their hands on me, and all of a sudden, there was this magic transformation, and now I'm this beautiful butterfly, and everything's great, and if you want to have that same reality, you should come to church with me, you know? and that's so often the kind of testimonies that we're conditioned to tell and it's pride it's this unwillingness to recognize that we are in daily need of a savior that we are still weak that we have tenderness that we have struggles and we need to root out of our church communities that sense of pride where we are so busy helping other people so that we don't have to face the material reality of our own lives. Because when it comes to our fellow believers, there's a difference between prescription and invitation. When we live out of that prideful mindset, we get stuck in prescription where we see the problems in other people's lives and we know exactly the book they need to read or we know exactly the Bible verse they need to memorize or we know exactly the podcast they need to listen to or we know the conference they need to go to or whatever it might be and we prescribe the realities of the kingdom to other people without ever allowing those realities to really touch our own lives. I think the kingdom of God speaks as much to our attitude as it does to our theology. I love theology. I think it is very important that you know what you believe. And many of you know, as I've been sitting with you recently, I'm challenging you, whatever your, your little doctrinal statements are, what you believe about this, that, and the other, to say, what are you saying about the reality of God when you make that statement? Because if that's what theology is, words about God. And so whatever you believe about any number of things, about baptism or LGBTQ rights or whatever it is, whatever the, you know, whatever the conversations are in the church right now, it's to say, when you believe that, what are you saying about the heart of the Father? And we're so disconnected in what we say we believe with what we say that we believe about God that we've never built the bridges between those things. And so what you believe is very important, but the attitude by which you hold those things is just as important. It was a major revelation for me when I realized fundamentalism is not a set of beliefs. Fundamentalism is an attitude by which we hold our beliefs, where we are rigid and unchanging, where we use our beliefs to beat other people up to exclude other people. It's this attitude that we hold. And guess what? There are conservative fundamentalists and liberal fundamentalists, there's fundamentalist atheists, there's fundamentalists in every religion that we have. Because it's this attitude by which we hold the things that we say that we believe. And it's that attitude that causes us to be prescriptive instead of invitational. And so the question really becomes: How does what you believe affect how you see and treat other people? Because pride and humility are not doctrinal statements; they're questions of intimacy. They're questions of the way that we see God and ourselves in the world. And I, it's like every time that I'm writing a sermon, this happens to me. I think, "Oh, this line is going to be so good." For Robert Acevedo. You know? This, man, oh my gosh, yes. Oh, so and so. They really need to hear this. And there's this fine line. There's this really fine line there between prescription and invitation. Where the invitation is to say, oh my gosh, Robert and I, we were having this really amazing conversation. It kind of brought up this thing. And yeah, that is so true. Like, we're going we're gonna to gather around that thing. And then there's that prescriptive bit that's like, oh man, Alex Ventidos, when she hears this line. Woo! She's going to get it. She's going to get it. And that's that prescriptive thing. And I'm so guilty of that so often when I'm writing sermons. As I'm doing the work, as I'm studying and I'm looking into the commentaries and I'm kind of piecing everything together, that it's so easy for me to become prescriptive with what I'm saying rather than first of all seeing how, how am I walking through this? How is this an invitation for me? And then in humility to invite other people on the journey. And it's almost like I need a little rear view mirror attached to the podium right here because if I'm not preaching to myself, then I'm guilty of hypocrisy. But I think that's the same for all of us. If we're not first and foremost seeing how the realities of the kingdom affect our own lives, call us to challenge our own status quo and our assumptions so we can learn to be more humble Then we can't help but prescribe to other people. I think that brings brings us to this. Are there people in this room right now that you think, how did they get in here? Why are they allowed into the house of God? Oh, they really need this thing. So what I want us to do is I just want us to take a moment, just close your eyes, whether it's your first Sunday or your hundredth, And I just want you to think on that. Is there a person, a type of person, and when they come in you have this righteous indignation to say how dare they show themselves in the house of God? Oh, they really need to get this right? Oh, they need to really figure themselves out before they come in here and worship with me? Are there certain kinds of people that you look down upon, that you think less of, because you've got it right, and they don't. And we recognize that, the, that humility begs us To step into invitation we begin to journey together because if we're honest we realize that all of us are maybe an inch along a mile's journey even those of us that have been walking with the Lord for decades we still haven't arrived we haven't gotten it all figured out I think humility breeds in us a genuine sense of compassion because you know what that prescriptive attitude to the kingdom does? Is it puts us in the position of pity, where we're hovering—I know this really ironic that I'm on a stage—but we're hovering about 10 feet above everybody else, and we're saying, oh, what does that person need to get to my level of spiritual excellence? What do they need to hear? What do they need to do in order to get to my level? And that's that difference between pride and compassion. Because the compassionate response is to recognize that we're all on the journey together, and that we're all weak, and we're all tender, and we all have struggles, and yes, we all sin. But it's this common journey together to believe that the people that walk through this door are here because God has actually called them to be here, not because you get to choose who walks in the door and who doesn't. And to believe that everybody is here by divine intervention. That everybody here is here because God wants to do something in and among and through us, that we actually start entering into the kingdom together and that nobody gets left behind. And so, how do we move from the prideful heart of the Pharisee to the penitent heart of the publican, of the tax collector? Because that's really the journey of growth I think that we're all invited to. And I think this happens through confession. I think the prayers of confession are actually the gateway into the kingdom of heaven. And there's a lot of different uh, church backgrounds represented within our community, which I love. And there are some denominations and churches where confession is actually central to worship. And there's a lot of churches that it's never really talked about because a lot of churches continue to toe that line of, no, no, it's about awesomeness and capability and strength and power. And we have to continue to promote that. And if we ever speak of weakness or struggle or sin, that in some way that reflects poorly on our Savior. And I think we have a lot to learn from church traditions that actually put confession at the center of their prayer life, as the beginning of their conversation with God. Because when we confess, we are embracing our neediness so that we might receive God's grace. When we confess our sins, we're embracing our neediness instead of running away from it. But recognizing that that is the place where we actually receive grace, that confession becomes the fertile soil for intimacy to grow with God. I think so many of us struggle with intimacy because we are incapable of being weak. Because we continue to feel the pressure to be strong and to be capable and to be awesome. And we wonder why we're alone. That's the problem with self-justification, is that it works. Yeah, you're justified in your own little world, but there's not a whole lot of other people there that are ready to meet you, least of all, God himself. We find in this prayer of the tax collector, he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the foundation of prayer in the Eastern Orthodox Church, our Greek brothers and sisters. There's an adapted version of it. It's called the Jesus Prayer, and it says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's almost used like this repetitive mantra of prayer that the more that we pray it, the more that it kind of conditions us to be in that posture to receive the kingdom. And I think for my money, if there was one prayer that you were going to pray for the rest of your life, like scrap Everything else, if you were only ever going to pray one more prayer for the rest of your days, this would be it. You'd be good if this was your only prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That becomes the cornerstone of our prayer, of our intimacy with God. And it begs us to ask the question, what do we mean by sin and sinner? I think even so many of the modern conversations that mix as much pop psychology into theology as we have today are actually these distractions from dealing with the material reality of, of our lives. We get into, well, what is sin and what is not sin, and are we really sinners if we're, if we're already saved, and are we speaking negativity, all of that stuff, I'm just over it. Because all it does is it distracts us. You want to call yourself a sinner, you're a sinner. If you don't want to call yourself a sinner, fine. As long as you recognize the material reality of your life and the way that you define words doesn't prevent you from stepping into intimacy with God. What is sin then? I think sin is our illusion that we have got it all together, that we are strong and capable, that we are justified because we've gotten it right and everybody else has gotten it wrong. That sin is actually us struggling to maintain this illusion of power and control as a way to cover over our weakness and our neediness. Because that's what shame is. Shame is that deep-seated fear that I'm inadequate, that I don't actually measure up that if everybody could see me the way that I am, they'd see how much of a fraud I really am. That I wouldn't actually be lovable if people saw what I think and what I feel and what I do when there's no one around. Quite often I I use a rosary for my prayers, and and I start with this prayer of confession. And what I do is I I confess ten things for the ten beads that are there in a row, and I find how often I struggle to think of ten sins that I've committed in the past twenty-four hours or forty-eight hours or whatever. And that is not a reflection of my piety. That is because so often I am so numb to the sin of my own life that I can't think of ten things. There's this little phrase in 1st Timothy that Paul uses speaking to Timothy. He, he says their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And it's this really powerful image of what I think happens to so many of us. We call it the seared conscious, where you are in so stuck in habitual sin and wrongdoing that you actually lose any sense of feeling towards it. It's as if there's a hot iron that's just been pressed into that part of your brain and you lose connection to that that thing. You don't feel any remorse anymore because it's become so habitual and such a normal part of your life. Because pride breeds numbness. Pride breeds spiritual numbness. When we continue to try to convince ourselves and other people that we've got it all together before long, we lose any sense of feeling. I think this is the the, the kingdom paradox that I spoke of a couple weeks ago of being fully accepted and fully transformed really begins to play out in the space of confession and repentance. Because prayers of confession challenge us to see what do we really think about God? What do we really think? That if we expose our weaknesses to Him, that He's going to treat us like everybody else in our life. That if we admit to God that we're weak and that we're needy, That he's going to reject us, he's going to neglect us, he's going to abuse us, he's going to make fun of us. And So often we hide from God. It's like in that story of Adam and Eve where they eat of the tree and they realize they're naked and what do they do? They cover over their nakedness. They literally try to hide their indecency and their inadequacy. And then they run away, and then God comes into the garden and is calling for them, and He eventually finds them, and they say, we hid from you because we were naked, and we were ashamed. And God asks them a question that He asks you every day. Who told you you were naked? Who told you that you weren't enough? Who told you that you weren't meeting the mark? Who told you that you needed to cover over your inadequacies in order to be found in my presence? Confession asks of us, can we trust him with our brokenness? Can we trust him with our weakness? Can we trust him with our sin? Because the illusion is that he does not already know these things about you. But he wants you to know that he knows. I think confession then leads us to repentance, the actual space where we begin to to change the way that we live... And I think it's very important to recognize what Christian even said last week, that we have to understand repentance is a joyful thing because it's the seed of intimacy. And again, that's where confession and repentance language could be so triggering for many of us because we think that repentance is supposed to be mournful and woeful and we're just pieces of garbage and all of this kind of false humility nonsense. But that we recognize that repentance is actually joyful because the the product of repentance is that we find ourselves in increasing intimacy with God. We find that He does not reject us. He does not push us away. He does not push His demands on us to just behave so that maybe we can earn a place at His table. But He's there ready and willing to receive us in, to forgive us of our sins, and to set us on the right course. In a word... Confession and repentance lead us to grace. So again, a couple of weeks ago, I said in my, in my message that the love of God blesses you where you are today, and that's the acceptance bit. But he's also not content to leave you there. And That's the place of transformation. Or maybe we can say it this way, that God loves you exactly where you are today, and that's what his mercy is. The mercy of God is that he loves you exactly the way you are today. But the grace of God is His hand empowering you to become who you cannot become on your own. The grace of God is Him empowering you to do what you cannot do on your own. The grace of God is His hand reaching down from heaven and lifting you out of the ditch so you can begin your new life in Him. I think many of us are very happy to receive the mercy of God and we don't know what to do when we receive the grace of God. Because we do not know who we will become when we are changed. Again, we want to be accepted, but we want other people to change. We want other people to modify their behavior. But as as Daniel even pointed out to me earlier this week, as we're kind of meditating on this content in Romans, Paul says, do you not know that it's God's kindness that leads to your repentance? It's not the big stick that God carries with him. It's not him wagging his finger at you that leads you to repentance. It's his kindness. It's his mercy and grace met up in his beautiful kindness that brings us back into relationship with him. And I think this begins to get to that upside-down logic that we find in the kingdom, that, that last line that Jesus speaks in this parable. He says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I do not know if we appreciate how revolutionary that mindset is. Because on some level, we all still believe the conventional wisdom of our modern culture. That it's those who exalt themselves, who promote themselves, who project this illusion of competency and strength, they're the ones that everyone's going to adore and lift up and champion. And it's those who admit to their weaknesses, who admit to their faults that are going to be cast into the outer darkness, we are not going to have a place in society, we are going to become these pariahs because they're a liability, because maybe those people in our presence remind us of our own weakness. That's the conventional wisdom of the world we live in today. But the beautiful upside-down logic of the kingdom that Jesus gives us is that you have a a role to play. You can exalt yourself and accept what that means for how God is going to, to help you along in your spiritual journey. We call that humbling or humiliation. Or you can humble yourself. And I'm not talking about this false humility nonsense. I'm sure you've heard someone speak of this. Humility is not going around and saying woe is me, and I'm a piece of garbage, and I'm unlovable, and I'm so totally depraved, and I'm blah, blah, blah. That's not what I'm talking about. That is a gross mischaracterization of true humility, and it has no power in it. Because, again, that kind of false humility cuts us off from the grace of God but rather to realize I have this beautiful image of God within me, the Spirit of God living within me, His gifts in my story, in my personality, and also I have these weaknesses and these tendernesses and these places of brokenness. And it's not either or, but that I'm a very complex human being. True humility is being able to see both sides of who we are through the eyes of God and then to offer it to Him and to say, do with this as you will. That's what true humility is. It carries a tremendous amount of power in it. But this reality of the kingdom is so upside down and unconventional to how we assume everything needs to be. So I want to give you a phrase that's going to set some of you free tonight. You're only a hypocrite if you don't admit it. Can I get an amen? You're only a hypocrite. If you don't admit it, what is hypocrisy? It's projecting this unwarranted powerfulness and sense of control and self-justification. And I hear it so often from people. They say, well, I could never go to church. The church is full of hypocrites. And I'm like, yeah, where else should we be? You know what I mean? Like, of course. I actually had a friend say, well, I'd love to come to your church sometime, but I don't know, like I haven't been to church in a long time, and, and I'm a sinner, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Like you're in the best of company to come and join us. But the church is only full of hypocrites if we're the kind of people that don't admit that we're hypocrites. But the beauty of it is that as soon as you confess that you are a hypocrite, you're no longer a hypocrite, you're just a human being. And that's freeing. You're no longer enslaved to this illusion of power. You're no longer a slave to this sense of control and competency, that you're this whole and complete, wonderful specimen of a human being, but that you recognize that as a human being, you're complex, and you're a work in progress, and that God has still so much more that He wants to do in you. And the more, as the church, that we confess to our complexity, our strengths and our weaknesses, our glory and our shame, the more we can be this accurate representation to the rest of the world what it really means to enter into the kingdom. Because if we continue to try to promote this sense of, yes, I was a mess once, but now I'm awesome, and if you want the same thing, you should come along with me, then we will never see the transformative encounters with God that we desperately want to see in the lives of our friends and our neighbors. But if we live a life of openness, we live a life of confession and repentance, It's our demonstration of walking the journey well and walking it humbly that is actually the best story that we can tell of what the heart of God is really like. I think it's important to recognize the subtle difference that the church is not the kingdom of God. Just going to church and just listening to worship music and all that stuff, that's not the kingdom of God. The church is a group of people that have committed to one another to seek out the kingdom together. And that when we confess to God, when we confess to one another, we find ourselves in that beautiful, powerful position of humility to walk the journey well together. And So we're going to practice confession, I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to leave a moment for you to just have a dialogue with Father God, to ask that question, do you trust Him? Do you trust him with your weakness? Do you trust him with your brokenness? Do you trust him with your failures and your shortcomings? That he's not going to reject you or condemn you, but he's actually joyful because you're opening up a space in your life for intimacy. I just want you, after I pray, to just sit there a moment and just do some work with him. Allow him to reveal those things if need be and to confess your sins to him and to repent. Let's pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Let's confess before the Lord. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at citybeautifulch. We hope you join us again soon.